All right, we're starting the recording and this is starting mid-talk. So um, thanks to all of you for bearing with us. We're talking about taking substances and states of consciousness. So this basic question is, when we intentionally alter our state of consciousness, where is that intention coming from? Is it coming from a place of open-hearted compassion and caring, or is it coming from a place of grasping? And that makes all the difference in the world. So we have states of consciousness, they shift throughout the day, and we as humans have found ways to intentionally bump them around. So an easy example, you wake up, the mind's fuzzy, right? It's sleepy. One might have a cup of coffee. Okay? Shifting consciousness. Not a big shift. Well, sometimes it is. <laughs> right? Another example, you come home at the end of the workday, right? And there's a lot of tension in the body or agitation in the mind. And somebody might say, it's time to have a drink. To settle it, shift the state of consciousness again. Right? These days, time to hit the vape pen, roll a joint, right? And there's meds, right? Which also evoke very strong feelings, right? And when I say meds, I mean doctor prescribed psychoactive, like pharmaceutical substances, right? And these are taken to shift states of consciousness over the long term or prevent certain states of consciousness from arising. And then right, there's the whole class of substances that are now being reintroduced in a pharmaceutical way that produce extremely different states of consciousness for a brief period of time, like psilocybin, MDMA, ketamine. So all these different ways, right, that we're constantly thinking about, or able to, I should say, alter our states of consciousness for all kinds of reasons. And I want to dispel the notion that I am a medical expert on all of the effects of any one of those substances. I am not, right? And I can't, I couldn't be because the research on all of them is constantly evolving, right? For years, you know, having a glass of red wine was great. It was probably good for your heart. Now it's not, not good, you know? Every newspaper has said it nonstop since January. No amount of alcohol is good for you. Okay. But the Dharma is actually not about having to know the material properties of everything in this world, right? It actually, it, it makes space for us to not totally know what the effect of alcohol is on us or the effect of taking mushrooms or the effect of the first cup of coffee, let alone the fourth or the fifth or the sixth. What matters is the intention that guides it and that receives the feedback that comes from engaging with it. And just as a reminder, right, we have the three wholesome intentions, which are to let go, to be kind, and to do no harm. And the three unwholesome intentions are to grasp, 
right? To engage in ill will or to be harmful. So one of the places that the Buddha started, and these are in the basic precepts that we take, is to refrain from taking intoxicants. And that word intoxicants is really interesting because what he was talking about is things that um, foment desire and delusion in the mind. Right? So when you think of, sort of classically getting drunk, right? number one, it creates delusion in the mind. Our ability to sort of perceive what's going on around us becomes impaired. It's harder to interact with people and understand what they're saying and express ourselves clearly. And alcohol tends to activate desires. Right? It tends to make people uh, wantier and also sometimes more belligerent. Right? So both aversion and craving tend to increase. And the Buddha warned about this. He said, do not take intoxicants that cause heedlessness. But this is a problem. Because once you make that choice, all the other downstream effects are kind of part of the karma of that initial decision. Right? So be really careful about starting down that road. And so for monks, he said, just don't even do it. Right? And for lay people, there's a little bit of a qualifier. Don't take intoxicants that cause heedlessness. Right? So you can think about it. Is this going to cause heedlessness or carelessness? But I found, at least for me, that uh, early in my meditation practice, if I had a drink at dinner the night before, and then I went to meditate in the morning, I was shocked that I could actually see a fuzziness in the mind. The mind was less clear. It was less able to stay with the object of meditation. It was less able to name the mind states it was going through. I was kind of blown away by that. And that was actually one of the sort of last things I needed to see to say, okay, this is just not a helpful thing in my life. And, right, I can imagine certain circumstances where alcohol might serve some type of compassionate, loving, non-harming purpose. I don't come across them often in my own life, but I suspect they're out there, right? Again, I... I'm not the expert on all the uses of alcohol. You know, my mom used to put whiskey on my gums when I was in pain as a little kid. I don't know if we do that anymore. But that came from, from a place of love. One of the interesting things, right, and maybe what made me sort of think of this topic tonight and want to explore it a little bit, actually two things, is one, in my work as a therapist, I've noticed um, sort of the strong reactions around things like, like pharmaceuticals, like taking me pre prescription medications for mental health issues. And it can bring up a lot of places where we're actually caught, where we're caught in grasping or craving around either an identity or on wanting life to be a certain way. So on one hand, right, some people really struggle to take medications because they don't want to be the kind of person who needs that. There's an identity issue, right? It's like, I don't want to be the kind of person who has to take drugs. Right? And that can cause some suffering, right? It can keep us actually from getting something we need to. And on the other hand, 
right? Medication can be seen as a way to not have to experience some of the difficult things at life or look at some of the difficult things that have been plaguing their mind. It can be a way of tensing up against life, avoiding life, trying to grab onto something that keeps us from having to deal with the difficult. So it brings it, it's, it's amazing how touchy sometimes bringing up the subject of medications can be, even in a therapy office with a client I've known for a long time. Right? That can just be, because these, these deep egoic identities around who we are, what kind of person we are, I'm not the kind of person who does that. Or, you know, or yes, please. Actually, the only reason I came in here was because I was hoping you'd tell me everything's okay and I just need to take meds, right? I've had both of those. And the truth, I think, is neither, right? The question is, does this serve this mind in a helpful way right now? Is this something that's supportive right now? And the only way we know that sometimes is to try it, right? We, we do our research, right? We look at the likely pros and cons and the side effects, and we get the medical advice that we can, and we get the advice of the people who know us and care about us, and we make an informed decision and see what happens. Because we can't know. And then the last category I wanted to talk about is, um, sort of this new class of like extreme consciousness altering substances. And I say extreme just because they shift consciousness in a way that most people are not likely to have experienced in their lifetime, but for maybe in brief, brief moments. So the three that are, are moving into mainstream culture right now, right, are ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin. And what's interesting, right, especially like MDMA and ketamine were back in the 90s when I was a teenager, uh, were recreational. These were drugs that people did to have fun. Um, psilocybin also, but, but even then, it often wasn't fun. Um, but MDMA and ketamine were really used as party drugs. And what's interesting, especially when you look at MDMA, is that the state of consciousness that it arouses is a feeling of loving and being loved, right? So it actually replicates something that people deeply yearn for, right? A feeling of connection, a feeling of being seen. And people love that, you know? <laughs> There's a reason it was so popular. But even that feeling of wanting to be loved, wanting to love and be loved can come from a place of grasping, right? Instead of figuring out what the blocks are, what's keeping us from engaging, in a wholesome way with the world around us and cultivating healthy relationships and dealing with problems. If you just take a pill to create the feeling of love, you're skipping a lot of the important parts of life. Right? That's, not, that's not a wholesome use of a drug. It's a way to escape. But in its new use, MDMA in a therapeutic situation with somebody who has uh, PTSD or symptoms of post-traumatic stress, that feeling of love can create such a sense of safety that they can move their attention and talk about things that are actually just too scary or painful to look at or talk about. 
So it has tremendous therapeutic value. There's lots of wonderful studies showing that when war veterans take these substances into their bodies and are gently guided to, to share their stories, that they're able to do it. And that this can create some really lasting change in the psyche. Because once they can see that stuff and process it and feel it with enough of a sense of, of support, uh, some of those old memories and emotions that have felt really stuck can start to move through them. It doesn't mean they're gone, but they lose a lot of their charge. So it's about intention there, right? The intention comes from a deep place of compassion, right? There's somebody suffering who needs this. Ketamine, I don't, I don't fully understand therapeutic use, so I'm not gonna get into it, but it's supposed to help with long-term depression. So coming from a, a compassionate place also. But the last one, psilocybin, and this one's really interesting and has particular applications to mindfulness that I find fascinating. So psilocybin, as, as I was reading in a, like a Psychology Today synopsis of some of the research on it, one of the primary things it does in the mind is it shuts down the part of the mind that's um, heavily engaged in self-reference or self-referential thinking, okay? The part of our mind that's thinking, is this good for me? Is this bad for me? Who am I? What's my place in the world? And for any of you who've studied the Dharma for a while, right? that's kind of an important piece of what we're doing. The noting and naming practice, breathing in, breathing out, hearing sounds, feeling the chair, noticing anger. These are all, the, even the framing of that language has no me, myself, or I in it. Right? The point of this is to start to shift the way that the mind processes reality away from the narrative of me. And so psilocybin actually supercharges the very thing that we're cultivating in the mind here, which raises some pretty interesting questions, right? Like why bother sitting here all the time if you could just, you know, wake up and take some mushrooms? Or, right, are they worth trying? Right? Not only so, mushrooms have been shown to have some pretty tremendous therapeutic effects for people with uh, substance use disorders, post-traumatic stress, um, in a very different way than MDMA. But it also seems like it could have the potential for sort of spiritual progress and growth. And again, I don't have the answers here. But what I've found is that things like psilocybin or ayahuasca for some people, what they can do is they can sort of show us a path. They can help establish or set down a marker that there is a different way of seeing the world, right? So if sitting in a chair for a half hour once a week hasn't sort of built any faith that there's another way of processing or experiencing reality, those those substances, if taken carefully and with the right guidance, can do that, right? They can shift the mind in such a way that it's like, oh, wow, I didn't know that was possible. For people with PTSD, right, it can sometimes really uh, help them see stuff from a very different angle right, and process it in a different way. If you take out the self-reference point, old stories look very different. And 
they're not the end of the story because the trip ends, right? For any of you familiar with Ram Das, right? Or Richard Alpert when he was a doctor, right? He sort of a pioneer of the psychedelics back in the sixties and eventually became a famous spiritual meditation teacher after doing a lot of psychedelics, right? His conclusion was sort of that the trip ends and there's what, even though there's this, this beautiful experience, this understanding, there's no framework to kind of carry that wisdom forward into the rest of life. And so what I like to think about what we're doing here, right? Why we choose in this way to shift our consciousness through things like long retreats, right? That's how we do it here. And I'll say the experience at the end of a long retreat is remarkably similar to the experience of taking mushrooms, like almost identical, really shockingly similar. And, and this has been reported by a lot of people. Notice there's no me, myself, and I here, right? But what I, what I love about the Dhamma, what I appreciate about this is that there's this ethical framework that comes up. And there's this way of understanding the impediments in ordinary life to those altered states of consciousness so that even as we're going throughout the day in more or less our, our familiar states of consciousness, we have this framework to know what's happening and to see them from this other angle, to use these very basic tools of noting and naming, of coming back to the breath, of the ethical principles of non-harming, right? to make sense of our daily life even when we don't have the ability to sort of completely transcend our old patterns. Right? There's, this, there's this framework that is always accessible. So I'll leave you with that, right? Like, there's interesting stuff to explore here. And I think for those of you who, who have engaged in meditation for a long time or who really feel like you're looking for something to, to help you reframe a problem that has chronically been difficult, right? Consider going on a long retreat. And if going on a long retreat doesn't help, consider other things that might help shift consciousness, right? In a loving, supportive way. Because life is short. Right? And being stuck in the same patterns of fear and shame and grief, right? We don't need to do that. But if there's help possible, like let's avail ourselves of it. So this is great. And sometimes, right, the compassionate thing to do is to really help ourselves look at something from a completely different angle. I'll leave it there and open it up for questions and see what folks thought. Again, sort of wading into new territory. Yes. <laughs>